Well, this morning, let's take up our Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 23. We're going to cover uh, this paragraph, at least in the authorized version. We see two paragraphs. We're going to cover verses 27 down through verse 38. And as you recall, last time we saw the Lord was condemned by the Roman government, that is, by Pilate, and thus he was pronounced guilty by the civil authorities, as well as we saw earlier, he was pronounced guilty by the religious councils uh, that had been set up. Now, of course, this was all false. Our Lord Jesus was not guilty. Even Pilate himself said, There's, this man has done nothing that would cause him to be put to death, but because he did fear the people and because he gave ear to them, we see, according to verse 25, that Pilate then delivered Jesus over to their will, that is, to the will of the people, which ought to give you a little nervous feeling when you hear uh, politicians and those say, well, we want to go by the will of the people. Well, the will of the people is depraved, and there's the danger in all of that. And we see in particular here with the Lord Jesus. Now, at the point and juncture which we're looking at this morning, he is being led away to what is going to be called the crucifixion, where the Lord Jesus will be crucified uh, as the Jews and as the civil government see it because he is a guilty person uh, for crimes that, of course, he did not commit. But looking at it from a theological perspective, and that's the correct perspective, obviously, to see this for us, our sakes, is that he's being led away to make atonement and reconciliation and satisfaction for our sins. The sins of God's people being laid upon him in this work of him being our mediator and thus uh, Christ paying as our surety uh, the debt of because of what sin has occurred against God. Jesus Christ paying for all of this uh, fully and sufficiently and thus there is no further sacrifice needed. Well, as we'll point this out here in a little bit in the application, this isn't what's being talked about here. We're not seeing the theological uh, ramifications of this chapter. We're just seeing the simple narrative of it. Well, what we want to see now is he, again, is being led away to the crucifixion. And I'd like to read verses 27 through 31 at this point. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never fare and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Well, we see here a large crowd has gathered. Apparently, the news has gotten out that this, Lord, this man, whom they do not believe upon, has uh, been condemned and he's been found guilty and he's going to be led away uh, to the crucifixion, to be crucified, which was the way in which, again, all this was foreordained of God himself, prophesied of old. But again, the people are obviously unaware of much of this, though they shouldn't have, but again... 
sin blinds, and we see that they're blinded to all of these kinds of things. So we do see here at this problem, and they're probably a large crowd because the Pharisees and the rulers have stirred up the folks as well. And so this large crowd follows the Lord Jesus then to the cross. And you notice here the women in particular are wailing and crying as they go along. Now, just who these women are, we can't say for sure. We do know that there were some women who went along with the Lord Jesus who were his true disciples, and they ministered unto him. This doesn't seem to be whom it is speaking of at this point because of what will follow. He actually pronounces judgment upon them. So these are probably those who are just there, uh, maybe perhaps uh, hired, because you know the Jews had a, they were very emotional folks, and they would hire people to bewail at uh, funerals and deaths and such as that. Uh, whatever the case may be, though, that uh, we do see that they are following. And again, as we see in verse 28, the Lord Jesus turns to the women, it seems in particular, because he dresses them as daughters of Jerusalem. He tells them here, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And so while this is going on, while the cross is being carried, and obviously through the things that he's inflicted, been afflicted upon him, he turns to them and he addresses them in the way that he does here. As I said, they don't seem to be his true disciples because of what he's going to tell them here in just a moment. Now, what he does tell them here, beginning in verse 29, are what we would say words of judgment. Uh, The judgment that is related to, I believe, the upcoming destruction of the city by the Roman government in a few years, in 70 A.D. And at that time, God's wrath will be poured out mightily upon the city for their sins and for their rejection of Jesus Christ. And so this is what he's, I think, apparently alluding to here. Uh, Verse 30, I know this is quoted in Revelation, but it's also quoted from the book of Hosea, chapter 10 and verse 8. But I think it's just a, a figure of speech, meaning that it's going to be so bad, the destruction and the danger and the, the times at hand are so terrible upon them that they're going to cry out, fall on us, and to the hills cover us. And so, showing there that it's not going to be an easy time for the city of Jerusalem. Of course, we could see why. We can certainly understand why they're going to be judged, and that's because of their rejection of the Messiah, who so plainly revealed himself unto the people. And then we see a little odd statement in verse 31, For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And this is probably one of those, what we would call a parabolic statement, uh, showing here the Romans' treatment of our Lord, how that if they would treat him in the way that they're doing, who is, of course, innocent of all crimes, how much more will it be that they will mistreat the city of Jerusalem? So, again, I think that's what's being tied in here into this place in verse 31. For if they do these things in a green tree, that is, with the Lord there, the Lord himself, what should be done in the dry, that is, the city of Jerusalem, in a matter of 40 years, when they will, Titus will come in with his armies and he will destroy the city and not leave one stone upon another, as the Lord Jesus had told them. And then notice verse 32. And there were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. So we see here that it's not just the Lord Jesus who is to be taken and was taken to the cross. But we see there were some uh, male factors. And these male factors, children, we know, 
means criminal, and the particular crimes that they were guilty of was thievery, where they're called thieves in another place of Scripture in the parallel places. And so uh, the Lord Jesus here is crucified with them. Now, this is actually a direct uh, prophecy or revel- uh, fulfillment of prophecy that we find in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. Familiar with that chapter? That's the chapter of uh, Jehovah's servant uh, being taken and not for his own sins, but for the sins of those whom he represents. And he's mistreated and he's crucified. Psalm, or Psalm, Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And that's the key there that's being spoken of there in chapter uh, 23 of our gospel of there of Luke. And there were also two other male factors. That would be the other transgressors that our Lord Jesus was crucified with. Mark 15 puts it this way. And verse 28, uh, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So I just didn't think that all up by myself. Actually, the Bible itself said that this was a fulfillment of scripture. And here again, we need to understand and realize here that this is no mere accident. This is no mere coincidence that the particular things that take place, such as just by uh, accident, there happens to be two thieves crucified with him. No, this again shows us that this was the fulfillment of Scripture. Thus, it also shows us once again, those who are, who are reading this or who will be reading this account, it shows us who really is in control. And it's God. God was in control of the crucifixion. Though it looks like, as we stand back and we were just to view the scene, it looks like man and his sin is running rampant here and and everything's out of control. But in reality, it's God who's in control of all this. And so, brethren, if this is true of Christ, let me assure you, it's true of every member of Christ as well. The trials and the afflictions that you may have, let me assure you that things aren't going wild and running out of control. God is in complete control of all of this. From the good that may come to you as well as to the bad that may come unto you, I assure you these are no accidents. These are not coincidences that take place in our lives. These are nothing but the carrying out of God's sovereign decree. And that ought to be a great comfort to God's people both to realize that He so loves us, that He so cares for us, but it's also a help for us not to murmur and complain because we realize, again, God is the author of all these things. He's the one who's put us into these particular circumstances. And again, things aren't out of control. God is in control. Our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever He hath pleased, according to Psalm 115. Then notice at verse 33, they... Uh, arrive at the place of the crucifixion. And when they were come to the place 
which is called Calvary. There they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So we see here they arrive at the place of crucifixion along with the other two criminals, the thieves, as it's known in another place. By the way, the word Calvary, if you look in your sitter references, if you have a authorized Bible, the authorized version that does have the center references, you'll see that the word Calvary means the place of skull or the place of a skull. Uh, Mark, in his gospel, in chapter 15 and verse 22, calls the place Golgotha. You say, well, uh, why would it have two different names? Well, there are a lot of times you'll see two different uh, a place with two different names, a city with two different names. You even see people with two different names. So that's not a stumbling block. But John tells us in particular that the word Golgotha is in the Hebrew. So it's just a transliteration over in it. So that's why there. By the way, interesting to note, the word Calvary is only used once in the Bible. And it's right here. This is the only time that the word Calvary itself is used. Raoul makes a very interesting statement, and I checked it out just to make sure, that you've heard the phrase Mount Calvary. It ain't in the Bible. You look it up, there's just no phrase Mount Calvary or that he was crucified on a hill far away type of a thing. That's just not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us that. The closest we would ever come to the fact that he may have been crucified on a hill is the fact that Abraham was to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. And some say that Mount Moriah uh, was near Jerusalem and thus that's where they try to put the two things together. But the Bible itself doesn't do that. So a lot of this is just mere silly tradition that has been taken in and almost counted as fact. And I was surprised Rao, J.C. Rao, who can be a bit of a traditionalist at times, he uh, pointed out the fact that it's just not true. And you notice here the Lord is crucified uh, between two thieves. Notice again verse 33. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right and the other on the left. And thus, that would put Jesus there in the middle of this. Now, this is probably, either right here or just a little bit on, this is probably the time frame that the two thieves themselves begin to revile Christ. In other words, while they're hanging on the cross in their pain and in their agony, uh, dying because of their crimes, rightly so, they turn and they, with the crowd, make fun and mock the Lord Jesus at this point. And we know, of course, what will happen later. The thief on the cross, the other thief, one of the thieves, will be converted. But that's not true at this point. And boy, I can't wait to get, we get to that point uh, when we're discussing that portion of Scripture, how it will certainly do away with any kind of notion that a person is saved by works or future works, future grace, all that kind of nonsense that's being preached and taught today in our society or in Christianity. The thief on the cross had nothing whatsoever to offer God in order to make atonement for his sin because he himself up to the last minute was reviling Christ. Even when you think about it, you think of, uh, uh, what's his name, Paul. You know, he didn't turn the donkey around first, did he? 
before God converted him. He wasn't, remember, he was on his way to Damascus and he was going to go get some Christians there and have them haul before the high priest. He didn't go, well, wait a minute, what am I doing? Let me turn this thing around and go back. And then God saves him. No, God saves him while he's in the midst of going to do evil. That's why the Bible does tell us, by the way, God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify good people. He doesn't wait till we get good and better ourselves before he converts us. He never converts sinners that way. He converts sinners as rebellious sinners against him. True, when he does convert them, they do throw down the weapons of their warfare. They are no longer at enmity with him. But up to that point, they are, and I'm way off of my topic. Let's go back to verse 34. Uh, That was good stuff. But verse 34 is what we want to look at. He says here, and then Jesus said... No, that's not what it says. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now, this is considered by those who know things like this. uh, This is considered the first of his sayings. I think there are seven sayings on the cross. This is one of the first or the first that he says while he is on the cross itself. And we see here that he is praying and he is interceding for those who have crucified him. Now, it's obvious if we understand uh, something of his intercessory work that he is not praying for all of those who crucified him. But he is praying for the, the elect who are standing amongst them and yet... Even as the elect, they are still reviling him and making fun of him, just as the thief on the cross did until up to a point. Uh, We see that this is the one. These are the ones who he includes in the prayer. Note here that he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, they're doing this in ignorance. Now, it's hard to know the full extent of what all of this means. I'm not certainly going to try to explain it, but we do know they were aware of some things about Jesus. Remember, Nicodemus came to him at nine and says, we know that you're of God. So there are some things that they knew, but I think here when they, what he's saying here to these folks here, when he's praying in this about these folks, that there is obviously things that they just don't understand in regards what is being taken place at this point. So the whole or the larger details of what's going on, they're in ignorance about. And that ignorance, by the way, is because of the blindness of their sinful hearts. As when one Puritan said, where sin reigns, ignorance is found. So being ignorant, brethren, is not a virtue. In reality, it's a curse. And it causes us to do things that we shouldn't uh, ought to do. But we see here that they were ignorant of, again, probably the full extent, all the theological ramifications of all this. Again, this is not the only time that's mentioned. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 17... Peter makes mention of this. He says, and now, brethren, I want not or no, I want that that he means there. I know that through ignorance, she did it as did also your rulers. So Peter, too, takes it into account that they were acting on ignorance. First Corinthians chapter two. Another point about the ignorance of those of that day. First Corinthians two and verse eight, um, Paul 
again, talking about something of the wisdom of God and all this, he says, but which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So are there again two other passages besides the one we see here in this our text deals with something of the ignorance of the people. So Jesus says here, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, Gill notes here, I kind of question the statement, but he makes a point. He says he notes here that the Lord does not mention the ignorance of these or those he prays for as a plea for pardon, but as a description of their state. Well, that would be obviously true. They were in an ignorant state, but that's how he gets he talks about that. The point here I want you to notice, though, though it is done in ignorance. Now, again, defining that ignorance only as it is used in Scripture here. It nonetheless, though, needed pardon. And the reason I say that is because that's exactly what our Lord prays for, isn't it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so we can all claim, oh, I'm, ig- I'm just ignorant and thus God's going to overlook this. No, the sins of ignorance are no excuse. Well, I just didn't know better. It doesn't matter. A sin, whether it's done in ignorance or whether it's done willfully, is still a sin. And it needs pardoning grace of God. We read here recently from the law how that there were trespass offerings for, or what it was called, sin offerings for things done in ignorance. Done, ignorance done by the rulers, ignorance done by the people, ignorance done by the priests themselves. It was to be atoned for. And when they found out that they had sinned in ignorance, they were to take their offering before the Lord. Well, here again, this is not just some mere platitude by our Lord here at this point. There was real substance behind this. He desired the forgiveness of his people here at this point, that they would be forgiven, whether it is a plea because they are ignorant or it's just a state of their being at this moment. The point of the matter is he does ask for their forgiveness. He prays for it. And I think God answered it. And then verse 34b, and uh, everybody who is against gambling runs to this portion of Scripture. But this is really not what this text of Scripture is dealing with in and of itself. I'll tell you why it's here. Notice he says here, And they parted his raiment, that is his clothes, children, uh, and cast lots. Now you notice here they part his clothes, that is they divide it up, and then they cast lots, that is they somehow made a, a game of it so or a thing of it so that they would, it would determine who would get it. First thing this would note, though, before we get into this, is that it does show us that he was crucified then naked. And the Bible talks about him being uh, being a shame what took place to our Lord Jesus. And that's part of it. He was there openly naked before the world, as it were. Our Lord Jesus, think of that. And truly, as a sinless man... He was like, as Adam, there was really nothing to be ashamed of. But as far as the world would account it, he was there naked before the world. Now, why is this portion of Scripture here? Is it so that every anti-gambling man can uh, say why we shouldn't be gambling? No, because actually casting lots was something the church did. But in uh, Psalm 22, we see the real reason as to why this passage of Scripture is here. 
it is once again to verify that the one that they crucified is the Son of God, is the one who was foreordained that would come and be the Messiah, the Christ. Look in uh, Psalm 22, verse 17 and 18. This is talking about Christ on the cross. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. There he is talking about his nakedness. Verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. So what he was doing, what was taking place here was a fulfillment of Psalm 22. That they would do this very thing. And if any Jew who had any spiritual insight at all who have would have known Psalm 22, verse 7 and 18, they would have said, Aha! There is the Messiah. That is the Son of David, the Son of God, who is being crucified before us. Look how he is fulfilling the Scripture. And the same could be said here this morning. If you doubt that Jesus is the Christ, look at the Scripture, my friend, and see how that every jot and detail is being fulfilled by Christ. What... How could he, as he was hanging on the cross, if he's not who he's, if he's, if he's just a man as most people think, how could he have arranged that? He couldn't have. It was the Son of God there, and it was prophesied of this. And then notice verse 35, we see they mock him. And the rulers stood beholding, and the rulers, no, excuse me. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ the chosen of God. So we see the people and the rulers here mocking him, verse 36 and 37. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Well, not only did the people and not only did the rulers, but the soldiers again get into the act. Remember when the soldiers took him while he was standing before Pilate, they also misused him. And they do it again here as well. They also offer him vinegar. He had already refused it, so this may have been a mocking um, thing. The way it's listed here, it would seem to be a mocking type of thing. Uh, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. Uh, he had already refused. He does take it a little bit later. But at this point, he refuses it. Verse 38, we need to hurry, he says here. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and in Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Children, what that simply means, there was a sign, as it were, hung above his head or uh, that said this is who he is. And it was written in the Greek language. It was written in the Latin language and written in the Hebrew language. Those were the three main languages of that day. Greek being what we would call the international language, just like English today is the international language. Uh, that was true of the Greek language. The Latin, of course, would be what the Romans would have spoke. The Hebrews would have been speaking Hebrew. But they were probably all very familiar with all three of them. Uh, this is, by the way, a partial wording of that sign. Uh, if you put all the Gospels together, I think it says something to the effect, this is Jesus, this, uh, the King of the Jews, or something like that. So this was just a partial reading, just as Luke shows, just some of the partial things that were done, not a full-blown orb of all things. Well, what are some applications and observations from this? First of all, note again here the patience enduring of all 
of this by our Lord Jesus for his people's sake. Look how patient he was for him to allow men to do what they did. To be nailed to the cross, put up on the cross, the pole, the tree, uh, despising the people despising him and all that they did. I think we see something of the patience and the endurance of our Lord. Looking unto Jesus, Paul tells us, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured that. Why did he do it? Because he had a love for his people. He had to atone for their sins in God's plan. Secondly, this shows us here that sin is punished. I think I put wrote in my notes, first of all, the fact that the city itself is going to be destroyed. God does punish sin. He does punish sin individually and he punishes sin in a corporate way, whether by church or whether by city or even by nation and continent. We see that, I mean, from the day one all the way to the end, this is true. My friend, you will not get away with sin. None of us will. God punishes it. Thirdly, we see here that he intercedes for his people. Even in the midst of his shame, in the midst of all that he endured, in the midst of the, we would say at this point, the human agony of the cross, the Lord himself at this point, Jehovah God, Father, is not pouring out his wrath yet. That will come, if I understand this right. But this is the human agony that is taking place for him. And in the midst of all that, what does he do? He intercedes for his people. And the scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, the reason why men, sinners, come to Christ is because he does this very thing. For such a high priest became us, verse 26, who is holy, and that's not the verse, verse 25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There's lots about all that takes place drawing a sinner unto Christ. But one of the things we would have to say, Scripture does point out, is that we do so because he has interceded for us. Here is an instance of this very fact. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Bible says God always hears His Son. I believe He answered that prayer. Uh, if the uh, Roman soldier who cries out, truly this is the Son of God, if he was converted that day, it was through the prayer, this prayer of our Lord Jesus on the cross. The thief on the cross next to him received the benefit of this prayer, did he not? For God, forgive them for they know what they do. One of the thieves, both of them, as a matter of fact, were reviling him, making fun of him, mocking him. And then, by the grace of God, one of them repents and cries to the Christ to remember him when he gets into paradise. Just a matter of 50 days, as we pointed out earlier in, the, uh, earlier in this exposition, 3,000 are saved on the day of Pentecost. There again is the effectual work of this prayer. All of his elect, for that matter. God certainly 
hears the prayers of his son. I'm amazed. Some of you may think, well, I think he was praying even for those whom don't die, who uh, he doesn't convert here. Even J.C. Rowell, who isn't necessarily the strongest five-point Calvinist you'd ever read after, even he admits that he did not pray. This prayer was not meant for the stubborn and stiff-necked rulers of the high priest Caiaphas and that sort of thing. He admits even that. So again, even Raoul the Anglican uh, would agree with us that not it was only for the elect. And then fourthly, notice here the fulfillment of Scripture. Brethren, this is proof that he was who he said he was, the Christ, the Son of God. And then fifthly, let me assure you this morning, all your tears and all your sorrows and all your lamenting are not necessarily signs of true saving religion. These ladies up here were bewailing and lamenting Christ, but he told them they will be punished. So our tears are not necessarily a sign of true religion. Number six, Luke records us for us the narrative of this. Again, he's not speaking of all of theology or the doctrine, the great doctrines that are developed from what takes place here uh, in regards to the sufferings and the death of Christ. We read that, of course, and mainly in the epistles, Romans, Galatians, uh, even Isaiah 53 and such as that. So if you're looking for the theological aspects of this, you'll need to turn to Paul and Peter and some of the other brethren in the Bible who do explain that. But again, true narrative, and uh, this is where the doctrines then are taken from.